Welcome to Times Up Outdoors, Episode 8. Today we are joined by John Eberhardt, an extremely accomplished Michigan hunter. We talk everything from scouting property and public land for mature bucks, to scent control, hunting from a saddle, and much more. We think this is our best episode to date, despite the shaky audio. We hope you enjoy the show. This is a podcast of episode eight, I believe. Um, we got John Eberhardt on the line. And John is a uh, extremely, extremely uh, successful deer hunter. Uh, all self-taught. He got over, what is it, 50 book bucks, John? Exactly 50. Exactly 50. Exactly 50. And, uh, and most of those are shot on public land, correct? Uh, well, I'll give you a little bit of bio. I've been bow hunting in Michigan for a little over 50 seasons, and I have 31 bucks in the Michigan record book, and those come from 19 different properties in 10 different counties. And I've hunted 17 different parcels of public land in Michigan, and during don't gun hunt, uh, during Michigan's gun season, I typically, since 1997, I've been going out of state. And on 23 out-of-state trips, I've taken 19 P&Y bucks from 13 different properties in five states. And uh, yes, like you said, I've never owned any property. I've never leased any. I've never hunted on managed property. None of my relatives have ever owned property. Uh, I've never paid to hunt any place. It's all been public and knock on doors for free permission properties without using bait. But I'm most proud of because there's. There's thousands of guys with several bucks in the record book. Uh, in, I mean, every TV personality has a lot of bucks in the record book. But what I'm most proud of is having that many bucks without owning or leasing any property, all public and knock on doors for free permission properties. And that's from 32 different pieces of property accumulatively. Um, and I don't think anybody else in the country can make that claim. I, I would I would imagine you're probably right in that. That's, so, that's a hard that's a hard number to beat just on uh, even on private private uh, uh, farmed land and, and managed property, let alone public land alone. Especially here in Michigan. That's right. It's, it's kind of difficult because that's always been my mantra. You know, as I've been writing and becoming more popular, if you want to say, I get offers to hunt private managed properties, even pay to hunt places in lieu of saying, hey, go to this place. And I, I have to turn all that down because as soon as, as soon as I kill one deer on a managed property or anything like that, my credibility of what I'm doing is gone. So it's very difficult because it's so much easier to go on those managed properties and kill big bucks. It's very difficult to turn it down, but that's what I've always done. And I will continue to do. Right, right. So you're self-taught. Uh, you, you basically learned how to do this all on your own, correct? Correct, yes. So tell me what got I, you into hunting. Uh, I, I was walking by an archery shop down in Ypsilanti back in the early 60s, and the owner of this store, and this was in the summer, I've always, I was always into whitetails because I had other kids in school, high school, that, uh, you know, they went gun hunting with their aunt or their stuff or their dad. So I've always been into kind of whitetails and nature and I was walking by the shop and I walked inside and the only person in there was the store owner 
And the name of the store was Ypsilanti Archery, and he was shooting what was at the time the old PA round, which was a three-inch round uh, white bullseye on a big blue target at 20 yards. And, I mean, he was draining the bullseye every shot. And this was back in recurves. There was no compounds at this time. And uh, I asked him, I said, man, oh, man, you're an awesome shot. Do you Do you hunt deer? And he said, yeah. And I said, man, you must kill a lot of deer. And he said, son. And back then, there wasn't a lot of deer in southern Michigan. It was nothing like it is today. He said, right. son, I've shot at six deer all closer than that target, and I've yet to touch the first one. He said, I get such an adrenaline <laughs> when there's a deer in front of me, I just lose it. And I don't know. Ever since that time, I just really got into bow hunting. I found an older, I found a guy uh, that basically it was my cousin's husband's uncle. <laughs> Uh, and he would take me bow hunting once in a while. His name was Leroy and he was in his mid thirties and he was a really good hunter for that period. And he kind of got me into it. He'd take me out to Pinckney recreation area and Gregory recreation area and, uh, and we would bow hunt. And, uh, that's kind of how I got into it. I started with an old Ben Pearson, 45 pound recurve that I could barely draw back about 24 inches. <laughs> I, I'm, and John, I'm, I'm, could probably teach you where to hunt at. <laughs> That's what I, I was just going to say that, hey, I, I live right down the road from the, uh, that Pinckney Rec area and all that. So <laughs> I'm actually out here at Pinckney and I drive oh, all the way okay. to Jackson County <laughs> and here you, you are a, shooting, you're shooting monster bucks in my backyard. <laughs> I shot a state record buck in 1981 out of Pinckney Recreation Area. Oh, geez, OP. <laughs> we're going to get to that. The buck has been beaten. It's not state record anymore. It's probably 15 down the list, but it was at the time it was. Well, you know what? Sure. Tell us. Tell, I want to hear that story. Tell us that story real quick. The the yeah, that's your state. Uh, that's your muzzleloader one, correct? Yeah, yeah. Basically, it was a second second day of, muzzle, of gun season, and uh, down there you either had, either had to hunt with a shotgun or a muzzleloader. And basically, a couple hours, two and a half hours before daylight, I waded in chest waders through a cattail marsh, back to a little island. Uh, that I had found previously. I saw some treetops back in this cattail marsh, and I just happened to grab some waders and went back there and scouted, and it was tore up. So I went back there, and that's where I shot that uh, that big buck. It was 167 inches. <laughs> Holy cow. I'm going to cut you off. Diego. I got a quick question before we get too far away from his last answer about how we got into bow hunting. Uh, when, when you got into it, I know if you ask any of us, you know, we were in – big families that are, are considered, you know, hunt families and all that stuff. My dad taught me and Scott's dad taught him. Nico still hunts with his dad, his brothers, all that stuff. How, what is, what was the demographic or where you grew up? What was the, the acceptance of hunters? I, don't, I almost want to say back then, but it makes you sound old, but what was the acceptance in your, in your area to somebody like you and, and, and the community, was it a big community or was it a smaller community of hunters? I, I went mean, to school at, I went to school at Northville High School, and Northville nowadays is a pretty upscale community, as you guys well know. Back when I went to school, it was a regular town with a dime store and a shoe store and, you know, a movie theater and a pool hall, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it was, Northville has never been an area where hunting has been, an, you know, a big deal. Like I live up in, I've lived in Clare and up north since 1972, and up here it's, it's a lifestyle. I mean, in Northville back then, it definitely was by no means a lifestyle. 
I'd say maybe maybe five percent of the guys in high school went deer hunting with their either their father or their uncles. Oh wow! Up here, up here they used to close opening day of, opening day of gun season. They used to close the school. <laughs> yeah, that that's, that's how it is where I learned. My my dad lives on the west side of the state, just south of Grand Rapids, and. You know, I grew up in a suburb of of Detroit, and nobody around here hunted. Um, but I'd go out to my dad's on the weekend, and he would take me hunting. And everybody out there hunts. I mean, opening day was like you said; they they closed school because the kids weren't going to go anyways. Yep. Yeah. They still do where I grew up. They still close school down. Where? Where? Um, I'm in Byron. I'm Byron, just north of Pinckney, about thirty forty minutes. Oh yeah, I shot up. Shot a buck in uh, up at the end of Argentine Road. There's some public land up in there. I shot one. <laughs> shot I one know there exactly the... what you're talking about. <laughs> it was in the 70s, <laughs> but I shot one with a bow in there. Damn it, John. <laughs> I, got, I got a buddy who owns some property on our, uh, right off of Argentine Road. It's oh, like okay. right down the street from where he's talking about, too. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, that's cool. Yep. Um, cool. So, uh, all right. So, we got some questions for you. Uh, get more Hold into on. the. Okay, the... yeah, go ahead. I got, no, I was good. I'm on the Facebook right now, and I've got a question for him. Oh, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, so this is actually going to probably be a pretty touchy subject. Um, this this uh, question comes in from uh, Aaron Bueller, is one oh. of our listeners, uh, and he says, "I'm always curious on a successful hunter's thoughts on APRs in conjunction in conjunction with uh, hunter's recruitment." So. I would I, I would imagine uh, how how I guess how are the APRs today um, acting on recruitment of hunters? Is it hurting them or is it helping them? Oh boy, that's a tough one. I have that's a, never. That's why I wanted to ask you. <laughs> I have never. I was never a big proponent of APR. Because all what APR does, you know, people people typically don't like restrictions coming down from the federal government. You know, you can do this, you you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. Um, so if you don't like restrictions coming down from the federal government, why should you as a hunter want to put restrictions on all hunters because it fits your personal agenda? Um, I've never felt that APR should be in place because if somebody owns 40 acres and he wants to shoot a three inch spike corn because it's more tender or it, that's something that blows up his skirt and that's what he wants to shoot or he's from Detroit and he gets to go up north gun hunting one week a year and, you know, he can kill a, possibly kill a six point and it will win the local, you know, wherever the factory where he works, it'll win the local buck pool, you know. So, you know, people up north and people that hunt a lot tend to want to put their agenda and force feed it down everybody else's throats. And I've, I've never been agreeable to that because I don't like restrictions coming from anybody. I'm I'm a kind of a libertarian, I guess, in that sense. So uh, but how does it affect hunters coming up? I think it affects them both ways. I think a lot of kids that grow up in hunting families, they like the whole idea of, you know, you got these youth seasons now where a kid for, you know, with no age limit on when you can go out in the woods, you know, for 10 years, a kid can go out in September 
and shoot the biggest buck in the area because they're extremely vulnerable coming out into a green field or a soybean field in September. Yeah. So, so they like the APR because it allows more bucks to live to maturity. APR basically, it's almost like a trophy buck management where more bucks live to maturity, which makes it easier for hunters to kill a bigger buck to put on the wall. Um, so I think kids that grow up in hunting families probably like APRs, but uh, kids that don't and don't get opportunities to hunt very often, let's say they grow up with a single mom and, you know, they get to hunt a couple times a year. They don't like APRs because typically they don't have, you know, if you're stuck on public land or something, the, the kind of bucks that APRs usually you have to kill don't exist that much on public land. So it works both ways, in my opinion. Uh, and see, you know, that's that's a that's yeah. a pretty uh, a pretty round rounded answer that this uh, this gentleman actually already uh, had said too. And that's I think that's pretty much all of our stances on it too. It's really it. I don't know if it affects the grand uh, population of hunters as much um, as one would think because it does. It's swing so far in either direction that it meets right back in the middle i think and so yeah. that, that that was one question that i, I found interested in that i could uh i couldn't answer either side too much so i i feel like i'm glad that i'm in we're in the same boat here <laughs> yeah because you look at it from this aspect there's a lot of guys there i know quite a few people that do not hunt in michigan anymore because it's so difficult to kill a big buck so they don't hunt in Michigan anymore and they opt to go out of state, you know, during the rut phases and where their odds are extremely high of killing a big buck because they're lightly on in states and there's lots of big bucks. So, you know, having uh, having APRs, those types of hunters would would like that. Whereas the guy that's restricted to public land, you know, he doesn't see much for big bucks and, uh, you know, APRs are kind of negative to him. He just wants to go out and kill a kill a antlered buck. So yeah, it works. It works both ways. I don't, I don't see it affecting it one way or the other. It's negative as well as positive, depending on which outlook you have. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. I can dig that answer. Actually, um, I, you know, I, I grew up shooting, uh, looking behind me on the wall. I got some real small bucks on the wall and I'm proud of every one of them, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. I don't really like the whole, you know, dogging on guys for shooting, you know, when guys post pictures on Facebook nowadays, it seems to always be the first thing out of their mouth is, well, it's not the biggest buck, but it's who cares? Just, are you proud of the buck or, you know, you shot the buck, you should be proud of it. Just be proud of it. Absolutely. That's how, that's how I've always, always felt about it. Now, myself, personally, I've come into a period of time in my hunting career or life that I am passing on small bucks and waiting for those mature bucks and trying to learn how to hunt those mature bucks. I think I, I'd like to encourage more people to do that if they have the time to do that. You know, that's a good thing too. Oh, that's a perfect thing. You're absolutely 100% correct. That should be the natural progression. I was the same way. I started out killing any deer. When I started bowing, if there, if there was a button buck, I shot it. And then I yeah. graduated up to those and year and a half old bucks and then I graduated to two and a half and then three and a half. So it's it's a progression with your personal learning learning curve. But yeah. when you put APRs out there and there's just a lot of mature bucks or you own a big chunk of property and you micromanage it and never shoot anything until three or four years old, 
there's no reason you can't kill a three or four year old buck every year because there's a lot of them on there and they tolerate a lot of human disturbance and scent scent and you know they're right. just dumber and easier to kill so absolutely you've worked you've worked at it in the natural progression of becoming is becoming a better hunter therefore you want to target nicer animals that's the way it should be right and it's more of a challenge you know as you get as you get more and more you know it's easy i could have shot i mean i could have shot as many small year and a half old bucks i wanted last year if it was legal to but it wasn't wouldn't really be a challenge to me at that point it took me the entire season to shoot something that was to me worth putting on the wall yeah now to me i personally don't care if they do apr i know because michigan sucks so bad i hate to use the word suck but compared to you compare michigan to iowa ohio indiana iowa kansas we suck we absolutely suck (laughs) and yeah it's just difficult to kill a mature deer you got to know what you're doing here to consistently kill three and a half year old or older bucks that's all there is to it and you don't have to be a good hunter to do that in some of these other states and i guess all the tv guys are living proof of that because they killed I mean, you just hit multiple. that nail on the head so hard. You just drove that right in the ground. You know how many? Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Coming from a guy that's got 50 CBMs right here. <laughs> oh yeah, that that's one of our biggest debates. Is that that uh, I, I read it somewhere? I don't know. I think Scott told me. I said that the Michigan Trophy Buck Hunter is the best hunter in the world. <laughs> to me, to me I well, I wouldn't want to piss off everybody else in the country. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> I, I got to be a little biased here. <laughs> uh, I, I would say this. I would say if you took most of the guys I know that are good hunters in Michigan, when they go out of state, they have no problem killing a Pope and Young buck. Um, and that's that would not be the same for somebody from out of state coming here and trying to kill a 100-inch buck. would be very, very difficult for them. But but you can't just limit that to Michigan. You look at other states that are very comparable pressure-wise to Michigan. It would be Pennsylvania, New York, pretty much all of Maryland, Massachusetts, all of those states up in the Northeast where they have a real high, Virginia, West Virginia, have a real high general population. Um, all of those states are extremely pressured, and uh, you got to know what you're doing to kill, kill mature bucks there on, on regular property. So, yeah. Oh, sure. I don't want to make it sound. I surely wouldn't want to make it sound like Michigan hunters are better than some <laughs> other hunters from other states. But there's a whole uh, lot of a lot oh, of hunting yeah. pressure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we get it. We 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 get it. We in the in the firefighter world, we're Detroit firemen, and we like to think that we're the best in the world. So we piss yeah. off a lot of people in that in that realm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, you're in Detroit, a lot of crime there, so you probably have yeah. to put out a lot more fires on it. A lot more fires, exactly. So I got you one more. Go. I got one more question from our listeners before we get into the stuff that we really wanted to talk to you about. Um, this guy is Urban Archer, in New York City. He wants to know: Do you have any advice for a first-time bow hunter going out into the field on his own? As far as suburban property, uh, I believe he's hunting public land in New York City. Yeah, uh, he is. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I do have. I do have some. If you're hunting on public land in a pressured area, and you're not, if you trust me, if you're not very far out of New York City with the population of New York City, you are definitely going to have a lot of hunting pressure. The closer you are to the to the big city, 
the more pressure that public land's going to have because it's the closest land where anybody can hunt. Right. I try to pretend when I'm going on on heavily pressured public land that everybody out there is trying to kill me. If you put it in that perspective, everybody's trying to kill you. So where, when you're scouting, you got to look for some nasty area, maybe some openings in some heavy cover, uh, cross a big river, cross a lake, get back to where other hunters can't access very easily with a boat or a canoe. Uh, you have to pretend everybody's trying to kill you. And where are the only areas when you're scouting that you think you may get up and move during daylight hours? Because you can you can scout and see all the spine in the world. You know, you could have a hundred scrapes and fifty buck rubs and you know, in a hundred area yard area. And but if it's if you can walk to it from a parking lot in an upright position and it's easy to access, you know, odds are there's gonna be other hunters there and all that sign is being made after dark. So it's absolutely worthless to hunt over. So you gotta look for areas where they've got excellent security cover and where basically where hunters during pre-season scouting, usually push those bucks and mature does back into those areas. And it's got to have good security cover for them to get up and move during daylight hours. If you just hunt open open timber with no understudy or something that's easily easy to walk to, your odds of killing something is going to be pretty slim to zero. Right, right. That's, that pretty much covers our first question there, Scott, as far as yeah. what are you you know looking for when scouting? Yeah, that, oh, that think, was that was our own first first question was was what's the first thing you're looking at uh, when you scout a new pop property that you've never been to? So, and that 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 was actually my question, um, but I can also piggyback off that maybe to uh, maybe get it a little more in depth. I know, like being in Michigan, there's a lot of public land out here, whether it be just a 10 acre piece of a reserve area or you know the Waterloo State, Pinckney, all that around here. And I, I mean, I, I might be naive to say you haven't hunted all of it, but uh-huh. what what is it that you're looking at um, to to even deem that that piece of property is viable? And I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that you shot a couple of popes off of maybe a 10 acre chunk of public land. How did you know that that 10 acre chunk of land was where they were at? Well, there are no section. There are no 10 acre sections well, of public land in Michigan. They're all bigger than that. Yeah, yeah. We're talking maybe 400 well, acres, something, but acres in the of, grand scheme of things. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, t- typically when I go out, I do all my scouting during postseason. I don't ever. I never scout during preseason. So when I'm out during postseason, I look at the property. Like if it's public land. You know, I go back to those hard to get to areas where I got to use waders to cross a river, go through some cattails, use a canoe, cross a lake. Uh, I go to those types of areas. And if the property doesn't have those types of areas and it's just open timber that anybody can walk through, uh, you know, standing upright, you know, I've scouted several properties, public properties in Michigan that I just abandoned. I didn't even go set anything up because they just weren't suitable for a mature buck to survive you know gun season they all get shot when they're a year and a half or two and a half year old so i just pass on those um so i'm looking for places back in where deer feel comfortable moving during daylight now a lot of times once you cross a lake or a river or whatever or crawl through a thicket and a lot of times when you get back in there you know it opens up into regular timber with you know, maybe some areas of some red brush or some oaks or 
Maybe in Michigan, you might have some lost apple trees back in the woods and the timbers got understudy. You know, once you get back in there, then you scout for your normal things you'd scout on private property. You know, then you scout for destination feeding locations like white oaks or red oaks, uh, lost apple trees or a primary scrape area or what's the preferred browse. Because even when you get back into those areas, deer, if they're not bothered because people aren't getting back that deep, you know, during the daylight, if they do move, they're going to typically, before they come out of those areas, which is typically going to be after dark, they're still going to get up in the evenings or, you know, early in the morning before they physically bed down. They're still going to browse and they're going to eat. So obviously you look for the normal things that you'd look for if you were scouting you know, private land, which is feeding, feeding destination locations and primary scrape areas, uh, uh, funnels in transition security cover, you know, just general stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, That nailed it. I mean, you're pretty much answering, you're pretty much flying through these questions here. You're you're talking about everybody wants to know. Let me slow down then a little bit. Let me slow down. I'm going to give you my priority list. Yeah, give us your priority list. I'm going to give you my priority list of what I look for when I'm scouting property during post season. And this is prioritized by most important all the way down to you can almost do without. Yes, this will be prioritized one through five. Uh, Primary scrape areas are hands down what I look for more than anything else. Now, typically on public land, because it's all timber and swamps, uh, you rarely see primary scrape areas. Typically in big timber areas, you don't see much for primary scrape areas. You might find scrapes along a runway, uh, but you don't find scrape areas. Now, on private property where there's ag, or a public property that maybe meets up to ag, you might find scrape areas close to the perimeter of the ag fields, you know, just inside the timber from the ag fields. But that's my number one spot that I look for is primary scrape areas. And definitely without question, at least 50% of the bucks I've shot in state and out of state were taken at primary scrape areas. So that's the number one thing I look for. The number two thing I look for is fruit or mass trees, such as apple trees, pear trees, which are rare, and white and red oaks. Um, I key on white oaks because deer prefer white oak acorns over red oak acorns because they have less tannins. So I key on white. And uh, so basically, when you're keying on feeding locations like fruit and mass trees, uh, those are typically during the years they're dropping food, they will oftentimes have scrapes under them because primary scrape areas are always made where there's doe activity. Because obviously they're laying down their dominance markers where there's doe activity. So they, obviously they make those, obviously apple. those doe activities are going to be next to your primary feed sources. Say that again. I said, and I, your doe activity is going to be next to most of your primary activity is going to be next to feed sources. Oh, you're so, talking when you say next year, next fall. Sure. During the fall. Sure. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, in the fall. Okay. Let's say, let's say I'm back in someplace and I find a, a, you know, a couple big white oak trees. I have no clue if those white oak trees or red oaks or apple trees or whatever, I have absolutely no clue if they're going to be bearing food that year. 
because I'm scouting these during, you know, February, March, and April. I'm done by April. So I'll prep these spots and then I'll do a speed tour just before season to see if they actually do have food. And I do my speed tours in full scent lock. And if they do have food, typically there's going to be some sort of buck activity because I don't do my speed tours till after September 20th when all the bucks have been rubbed out, all the bigger bucks have been rubbed out at least two weeks. So obviously if they're dropping food and there's doe activity there, there's going to be some buck rubs in the area and possibly scrapes under the trees. So, so I do that speed tour and that lets me know which trees I'm physically going to hunt that season and whether I'm going to hunt them early season or, you know, keep them, leave them alone until the rut phases. So that's kind of how I handle that. Two is, two is food, food sources and Maston fruit trees. And that kind of goes along with number one, which was primary scrape areas, because a pretty high percentage of the time, especially at apple trees, um, if they're dropping apples, there will typically be a scrape or two very, very near those apple trees because there's a lot of concentrated doe, doe feeding activity. So anyway, that's that's my number two. And number three is within bedding areas. I hunt, I hunt quite a lot of uh, interiors of, of bedding areas, which a lot of people term as sanctuary areas if you own private property. And a lot of hunters leave leave bedding areas alone, and I think that's a major, major mistake because a bedding area is like your house. So if I wanted to kill you, I would my best bet would be while you're gone out working or whatever to break in your house and probably hide out next to your refrigerator in the kitchen or in your bedroom. Cause I know at some point in time, when you get home, you're going to go to the refrigerator and you're going to go to bed. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to hide in the dining room because you may get some food and go someplace else to eat. And I'm not going to hide, you know, in any other rooms, I'm going to hide at the destination spots where you are going to be the most likely to be in that spot during that time I'm there. So bedding areas are phenomenal places to hunt. You know, lots of hunters don't like going in them because they're afraid of spooking deer out of them. And that's why when you do hunt within the interior of a bedding area, it has to be hunted very strategically. So I'll scout the interiors of bedding areas during postseason again, you know, February, March, and April. I'll go in there and I'll just scout the heck out of them because spooking deer during postseason is irrelevant to next fall's movements. They, everything comes back in there, calms down, doesn't matter. You know, you go scouting preseason, you're spooking deer, you're turning any mature bucks nocturnal before season even opens. So postseason doesn't affect deer movements at all. You could go in there every day and scout every inch of the property for a week straight from daylight till dark, run every deer out of there for a week. They're all going to be back in there way before season. And what you did in February, March, and April will be irrelevant. So, you know, I'm not one of those guys that likes to sit on the outside perimeter of a bedding area and listen to bucks in there during the rut phases, chasing and moving around. You know, lots of guys do that. They like to sit on the edge on one of the entry routes, one of the 10 or 20 or 30 entry routes into a bedding area. And uh, I don't know how many times I've heard it, man. I'm sitting on the edge of this bedding area and I can hear these deer in there chasing and doing stuff during the day, but I'm sitting here on the edge expecting them to come by me. You know, that's kind of dumb. Why don't you want to sit where the deer are going to be and they're going to be in there chasing? That's where the mature bucks are physically breeding the does during the 
during their estrus cycles. So you want to be on the interiors. But so you set these trees up during postseason, and you don't go back on a on a preseason speed tour. These are going to be rut phase locations only, very specifically, and they require an all day sit. So when you go in to hunt these interiors bedding areas so that you're not spooking deer with your entries, you want to go in about two hours before daylight. And again, I'm talking about after October 25th, you want to go in a couple hours before daylight so that you're in your tree and set up and quiet at least an hour and a half before daylight. Because typically in mature bucks in Michigan, you know, not in others, not in a lot of other states, but in Michigan, typically they are in those bedding areas before daylight. But once they're in the bedding areas, they feel comfortable. They'll move around in the bedding areas. And they'll chase those in the bedding areas during daylight. So you want to be in there way before daylight and you want to stay all day and don't leave till about an hour and a half, or I'm sorry, about a half hour after dark, which is after all the other deer have left the bedding area. So you're coming in before anything comes in and you're leaving after everything is left. So you're not affecting or spooking any deer with your entry and your exit. And uh, and of course, it always helps if you have a good scent control regimen because at some point in time when you're hunting in bedding areas, you will, without question, have deer downwind of you. I think that's a big, uh, that's one of our questions too. So we're gonna hold off on the, on the scent control thing, I do believe, um, and yeah, continue on, on your uh, your five tops. My four is funnels. The my number four is funnels or pinch points uh, in transition corridors between bedding and feeding areas, or between bedding and bedding areas. Um, now, a lot of people when you watch TV, and a lot of people like funnels between bedding and feeding areas, and that's okay. Um, but typically in a state like Michigan, that doesn't get a whole lot of activity during daylight by mature buck. What I try to key on is funnels between bedding areas within a buck's core area. So if, if there's a bedding area over here, let's say bedding area A, and there's another bedding area here, bedding area B, and there's another one over here, bedding area C, well, if there's good transition security cover between A and B and B and C or between A and C, um, you know, if there's adequate transition security cover where a buck can transition from one bedding area to another and feel secure, he'll do that during the, you know, during the pre-rut and during the rut. Um, but it's got to have, it's got to have security cover. So in other words, if there was a bedding area A and a bedding area B, and the only thing separating those two bedding areas was open timber, let's say mature timber with no understudy, the odds of a mature buck going from bedding area A to bedding area B during daylight hours is pretty slim because he's not going to make that vulnerable movement at exposed open timber to get from bedding area A to bedding area B. But if there's a some sort of a transition corridor where there's heavy brush or red brush or tall weeds or something like that, he will make that transition because he's got her, uh, exit security covered exit through if the mature bucks like to be close to some form of secure exit security cover. 
that's one thing in Michigan and heavily pressured states that they definitely definitely uh think about all the time you know if if there's one thing i can say about hunting in a, in a heavily pressured area it's security cover security cover security cover always be within within transition security cover or along its edge where a deer doesn't have to take more than three bounds to get within security cover to, to have an exit route where he's safe uh number five would be a small these are rare Five is really rare. It's a, be a small pocket of water in an area that's otherwise devoid devoid of water. You know, I've only seen that a couple of times because Michigan is kind of a low lying state, so there's pockets of water all over. But I I did on a couple different pieces where you know for half a mile there wasn't any water other than a little tiny pool or pocket of water or a big big mud muddy area in the woods. And uh, when you can find something like that. Um, where it's got decent security cover around it, where a deer will come and drink water during daylight, that's an excellent spot, especially during warm weather. And so those get hit in the mornings, in midday, and in evenings. And number six, I always throw this one in. Uh, a bonus, a bonus number. Nice. It's a bonus number, but it has nothing to do with a, a, an actual destination location. It's not a destination location, but it's it's a requirement that every donation, every destination location should have. And like I said before, it's some form of security cover surrounding the kill zone. So in other words, let's say you're out postseason scouting and you're walking along a crop field. Obviously, it's been picked. You're doing this in February, March, and April. And you see this little area off to the side, this little open area into the weeds. You know, there's a little open area and then it's timber around it. And there's three or four scrapes in it. Most people have seen that, where there's several scrapes along the perimeter of some form of a crop field. You know, that's something that it's possible that I might set up a tree there if I know that crop field is going to be in standing corn. Or I might set up a tree there for the year that that crop field is in standing corn because I would never hunt a primary scrape area if it were bordered by an exposed short crop field. Do you kind of follow what I'm saying? Yeah, because so, you're, so you're talking if it, if it was bordered by maybe a soybean or some kind of hay, yeah, hay field or a big wheat that standing corn, you're pretty much relying on that that rub site to be almost a primary rub site, maybe a secondary rub site, but that standing corn, you're banking on that being there to be the yeah. security blanket to move. Yeah, it's not rubs, it's scrapes. There's scrapes, I'm sorry. sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Not a rub, because um, they're, they're totally different. Um, sure. Yeah, basically the corn is the security cover. You know, everything sure. is security cover oriented. And, you know, if you're hunting at a primary, at a primary scrape area that's located along the edge of a standing cornfield, the odds of a buck coming out of the corn and working a scrape are just as good as the odds of a buck coming out of the timber and working the scrape. So, so now, you know, you can, they you bend can, the corn. So you can apply that to many different things. So I'm thinking I'm, uh, in my lease right now, I've got standing corn in one of the primary areas that I like to hunt. Um, We've got a couple hundred acres out in Jackson County, and right now one of our fields is standing corn, which is butted up essentially right next to a bedding area. And so by me hunting a scrape, I'm hunting four out of the five 
of your your top five most important right there. If I find a if I find a scrape right here, I'm hunting I'm, I'm hunting it all right now, and it's surrounded by it's lined by white oaks. You've got standing corn in the field, and then a bedding area off into the side, and so essentially they feel comfortable in there. Absolutely, that that actually is a phenomenal spot because a a big buck will come out of the corn and he'll feed on those acorns you know if the trees are right along the edge of the corn or if a a buck is transitioning from back in the timber farther or from that bedding area he's going to come through the corn you know having a having a location where the best runways come out of that bedding area into the corn uh that's a great location as soon as the corn's cut it's worthless as soon as the corn is picked, it's it's worthless till the next time it's in standing corn. But while the corn, I mean, while the corn is up, that's a phenomenal transition because the deer is transitioning from cover to cover, or he's eating acorns underneath an oak tree five yards from the standing corn, which is means if some if he got spooked for some odd reason, two bounds, he's in the corn and he's gone. He's secure. Yeah, I'm super Andy. excited about this. <laughs> Standing. I'm way too excited right now. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, if if that's something you haven't scouted, you'd be wise to take and when's that corn typically cut? Who who farms it? Uh it's there's a uh it's a mill, so I'm with as late as they got it in, I'm willing to bet it's going to silage, so it's probably gonna be cut super late this year. Silage is usually cut early. No, uh, well this is generally probably going to be cut early, latest heck this year. Okay. Well, so what, the they'll case. Do is they'll take, what they'll do is they'll take that because the edges, it's, it's on a kind of a plateau. And so they're going to cut the probably two stripes around the side as silage. And so you're going to have some kind of standing area in between their bedding area. Probably, I would say, uh, a combine's width. And the head row. They're, they're going to cut you cut the okay. head row off. Yeah. That's going to be all silage, and then they pretty much send it to a to a boat if it's going to stick around and grow. And it depends on the winter too, or the weather rather. So my I guess you is have, it's going to be standing for a while. If you have not scouted that, I would suggest I would suggest sometime after September twentieth and not before to walk the perimeter of that that field. You know, scouting something like that where you're not really affecting any deer movements because you're just walking the perimeter of two bedding areas. You're walking between them, basically. Sure. You're walking around the outside. You're skirting the edge. Um, I'd scout the outside edge of that cornfield, and I would look for, you know, to find, see if you can find some scrapes, which I almost guarantee you will under those oak trees if they have low-lying branches, or see, what, see how heavily... Uh, the runways are from the bedding area into the corn, or is there any apple trees around the perimeter? Uh, I don't know. Not around the perimeter. We've got another chunk of woods. It's about 120 acres that there are some apple trees. It's a little more to the north, a little bit kind of opposite of where of, on the other side of the cornfield we are talking about. Um, mm-hmm. There's some apple trees in there. Uh, they haven't dropped for a while. I, I'm not really sure what kind of status they're in, but um, not not right where i'm thinking there's a spot there's a actually a spot where i have a, a tree stand up right now um because of the last time the corn was up and that's where i saw a lot of action and uh th- this is where i'm talking about there's just full of oak trees and it's low lying in between a bedding area and standing corn but no no fruit 
Okay. Well, you want to do that after the 20th of September. That way the bucks have been rubbed out a couple weeks, and that way there should be, wherever the bucks are transitioning through, there should be some form of buck sign in the form of rubs or scrapes on the ground under those oak trees. And I would definitely, definitely look at those apple trees. I can't believe how many people have scouted their properties for them and there's apple trees on the property and they've never set up a spot there. I, I don't get it. That is their number one option. I mean, that's like a kid eating candy. <laughs> apples or pears. Pears are actually more of a draw than apples, but you hardly ever see a pear tree. Yeah. But apples aren't that uncommon because a lot of these areas of timber used to be pastures and the cows would eat apples and they'd shit them out around the perimeters while they're walking around the fence. You know, typically they walk the fences a lot. And now that it's timber, there's apple trees there for that were planted by cows. Well, cows you know, biomass. Bio never thought of yeah, that. I mean, that's really not that uncommon in Michigan because Michigan had so many apple trees and kids you know, farmers giving the cows an apple here and there up at the fence or something, and they shit the seeds out. Yeah, it makes sense. Makes Definitely sense. check those apple trees. As long as, if those apple trees are near some form of perimeter security cover and have decent security cover, transition security from a bedding area to those apple trees, that ought to be a great spot. If they have apples, obviously. Right. So, getting away from those... uh tactics there i want to i want to hear more about i know the answer to this question because i talked to you about it before but our listeners don't are you worrying about wind and weather or more about scent control for for uh not being you know but getting busted i don't worry about either one i've got clothing for any hunting condition weather wise and right. um my scent control is to the i never pay attention to wind direction so you don't care. So you don't care about the wind direction. That's what I wanted to get into more is uh, is your scent control because that's something that I struggled with over the years hunting the properties that I got um, permission to hunt or or lease or my you know my dad owns some some land and I I sit there and I think okay the wind's this way the deer should be coming from this this direction but sometimes they come from this direction so should I not sit here today. It seems like there's only like certain days that I could even hunt my entire property sometimes. Um, with, with come from them. wherever they're at to where they're going. So exactly. That's, people that say deer only walk into the wind are, are idiots. That's totally, totally not true. <laughs> um, and it's <laughs> literally, a, well, it, it's, it's impossible to just hunt the wind and not have it negatively affect affect your success rate. I, I hunted the wind for 35 years, you know, for my first 35 years of deer hunting, I hunted the wind exclusively. And, you know, it got to the point where I was regularly getting busted in certain types of criteria, terrain criteria that I quit hunting them. You know, I didn't, I quit hunting saddles. I quit hunting ridges. I quit hunting, uh, field edges. Uh, because straight winds and thermal currents and swirling winds just, you just never knew what they were going to do when the foliage was on. You know, wind, when it hits a tree with leaves on it, obviously probably 80, 90, 95% of the wind blows through the tree, but a good percentage, a decent percentage of it, if it's hitting it at an angle, it hits that tree almost like it's a wall and a certain percentage of it will turn and go down that tree line. And then if it hits another corner or an undulation in the tree line, 
it'll swirl just like the water in a river. You know, you back eddies and stuff when you're trout fishing. Wind does the exact same thing. So there was there was lots of places. I just totally quit setting up in those locations because I could never count on thermals and wind currents and, you know, trees affecting affecting the wind direction. And when you are hunting strictly by the wind, your best locations, your best rut phase locations, and let's be honest, during the ruts when you have your best opportunities at killing big bucks, there was years I never got to hunt my best rut phase locations because the days I had off work, the wind was always wrong. So negating wind is a monstrous deal. That's probably other two things in my career have totally changed my success rate. And it was scent lock and hunting out of a saddle. Those two things have altered my success rate more than anything else. And I, I, I can guarantee a hundred percent more than half of the bucks I've killed that are in the record book would not have been killed without one or two, one or both of those. Can, it's that so, big of a can deal. you do me a quick? Give me a uh, give me a quick rundown of what your let's say typical Michigan rut uh, apparel is. Uh, my rut apparel is far well, as far as Scentlock goes, and I'm an activated carbon clothing fan. Okay, so Scentlock just happens to have the patent on using activated carbon in hunting clothing. So obviously I'm a Scentlock fan because they own the patent and they are the only ones that actually use activated carbon. So as long as I have a Scentlock activated carbon jacket, properly cared for, I might add, jacket, pants, head cover, gloves, and clean rubber boots and a scent-free backpack, I'm good. So it doesn't matter what I wear underneath it, that's irrelevant. You know, a guy can wear merino wool, he can get out of work from a factory and throw his stunt lock on over top and he's good because that's your barrier, that that's your collect-all barrier. As long as you got that on over whatever else you have, nothing else below it matters. So as far as my, you know, I have different suits for different weather conditions. Uh, you know, Savannah, Snellock Savannah suit is our lightest weight suit. So that's what I wear early season. And then probably my number one suit that I wear, the suit I wear most of the time from Snellock would be their full season tactics. And then I also wear, uh, it's a relatively new suit they got out. It's called a wind brace. And basically that one has a member polyurethane membrane in it. So it's windproof and that one hold that one's for cold weather. I layer under that as needed. And it's, it's, uh, the membrane not only holds my body heat in, it blocks the wind because when it gets cold and windy, I don't care how many layers of clothing you have on, if they're all permeable and allow airflow through them, you sit on stand a while, you're going to get cold because the wind will blow right through your suit. So having something close to your exterior that blocks the wind is a big Big deal for staying warm. I also had a, a lot of. To, yep, go ahead. I, I was just going to say a lot of people think I've got this big, huge thing, and it takes me a half an hour to get dressed. If you pulled up in your, if you and I went hunting and you drove your truck and I drove my minivan and we, I, you parked and I parked right behind you, I 100% guarantee you I'll be ready and out of my vehicle before you will. 
ready to go in the woods and go hunting. I will be out of my vehicle within five minutes. You got to get out. You got to walk around to the back of your truck. You got to put some kind of a mat down if you're on dirt or water or wet ground or grass. And you got to pull stuff out of the back and change your clothes. I just step between the seats, sit on a sit on a seat and change my clothes right there. And I'm I'm literally out of the vehicle in no more than five minutes. That's, that's awesome. Not that big I think you're, we we helped you load stuff into your minivan at the outdoor ram line. <laughs> we did. You're, you're the only person I've ever seen hunt out of a minivan. That's why I, I love it. We're talking it's like a mini hotel room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we talked so, about this a little bit, and uh, I wanted to talk. Uh, just ask you the funny question: Why why the minivan? Why not a uh, like an Econoline or a nice rig? You know. Well, the minivan. The day I buy a minivan, and I've owned probably six or seven of them. I take all the seats out. So from the front two seats, there's nothing in the back. It's just a big flat floor. And I put my sled in there, my deer cart. I put my uh, ramp to slide the sled up into the van in there. I put all my my totes in there with my undergarments, with my waterproof garments, with my sunlock garments, with my backpack. Everything is just nice and neatly organized in there. So I just step behind the seats. I've got a nice rubber mat. And I sit on one of my totes and I just change my clothes. I can listen to the radio. It can be pouring outside. It's totally irrelevant. I don't care. I put on my rain suit. And when I step outside, I'm already dressed for it. You know, I'm not like somebody that has to stand outside the car and get dressed in the rain and, you know, pulling stuff out of your club cabin from the back seat or around in the back of the tailgate. I'm sitting there in a nice, comfortable weather, 68 degrees in my van, listening to the radio, changing at my own pace. I can go to sleep in there, take a nap, whatever. That's awesome. What, uh, I got a question. I'm for a you about the, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, got a, I got a question for you about the scent lock. So you're saying if I was to tell a person who's buying new hunting clothes, that it's their first year hunting, they want to buy some, some stuff, but they don't got a lot of money. Um, is it better to buy the outer layers than the base layers absolutely from Salak. so what's what's more important is what's on the outside is what you're saying outside is the only thing that's important okay. you don't need you don't need scent like base layers base layers right absolutely okay. not i hardly ever wear scent like base layers i wear i'm a big merino wool fan so most most of the 95 percent of the time my bottom layer is some sort of merino wool uh, right. Usually, ice, I'm a big icebreaker fan, icebreaker merino wool, and uh, I love that. And then most of my other layer garments are just, you know, fleece vests, you know, just inexpensive layer garments. Yeah, that's 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 cool. That's good. To, that's good to know because a lot of people will think that they gotta, you know, I can't afford to buy, you know, the base layers and the outer layers from Scentlock because I mean that stuff does add up. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Somebody was somebody was on a budget. What I would suggest them buy would be a Scentlock uh, Savannah coverall. I think they still make it. Basically, that's a one-piece union suit. Yeah, they do. And yep, they still make around, it. I think it's around 200 bucks, and then you need to buy a head cover with a drop-down. you got to have the head cover with a drop-down face mask. The TV guys don't know what they're doing. You watch TV guys. And they'll have a Scentlock jacket and pants on. They got a beard exposed. They got a hat, logo hat with their hair hanging out. Now, if you got your, if you got your hair hanging out of a hat, you better pay attention to wind. If you got a beard exposed, you better pay attention to wind. 
If your neck's exposed, you better pay attention to the wind. You've got to have the head cover with the drop-down face mask tucked into your jacket, and then your jacket zipped up to the collar. And you've got to have either a scent-locked backpack or you've got to wash your backpack in scent-free detergent frequently and keep it in an airtight container when it's not in use, just like you do your scent-lock. Because most people, I don't know how many times I've done seminars and, okay, how many guys here have used scent-lock? You know, bunch of hands go up. How many of you guys here have been winded in scent-lock? Bunch of hands go up. How many of you guys here use a backpack? A bunch of hands go up. How many of you guys here wash your backpack in scent-free detergent once a week when you're hunting during hunting season? Typically, zero hands go up. So you get into your backpack every time you go hunting to reload and do whatever, typically with your bare hands. And even if you got a scent-like jacket and pants and the head cover and everything else cool, you got this huge human scent wick hanging in the tree with you. And then if you get winded, what are you going to blame it on? The suit didn't work. No, it was because you got a stinky backpack. Yeah. So you yeah. got to do it all. I mean, what's you know, your if you're going to do it, you got to do it all. What's your take on the use of, uh, I, me personally, I don't think using ozone in the field makes any sense because I can smell it. Um, yeah. I feel like if I can smell it, the deer can smell it. Um. What's your take on using ozone on the clothing to, you know, reactivate the clothing or, or, or kill odors in the clothing or your backpack? That's okay. I would never, ever use ozone in, a, in the field. There is no way. Ozone has an odor, and anybody that says it doesn't is just lying. Uh, but if you treat your clothes with ozone, that ozone odor will go away relatively quickly. Right relatively quick it turns back to o2 um so yeah it does it does go away if you treat your clothes with it but if you're just you know people that wear permeable clothing just regular clothing you know let's say they're wearing sitka or whatever with zero technology um if it's permeable and, or if you take it outside and you hang it outside, let's say it hung outside for a year and it has zero human odor in it whatsoever, none, you are excreting human odor molecules 100% of the time you're breathing air. So as soon as you put something on, if it's permeable and it, it allows airflow through it, it's not going to be very long before your human odor molecules are passing through that garment. And you better pay attention to the wind. So that's what the activated carbon does. The activated carbon is a layer inside of a scent lock suit, and it actually absorbs your body molecules. And if I don't believe anything on anybody's website, so I I don't believe what scent lock puts on their website. I Google everything. So when you Google. When you Google activated carbon, there are literally thousands and thousands of uses for it. And I'm going to give you a few. It's used activated carbon, the same stuff Sunlock's using. It's used for gas purification, drinking water purification, sewage treatment. Nassau uses it in their space suits. It's used in gas masks, water softeners, paint respirators, dry cleaning processes, Every automobile in the world has some sort of activated carbon in its filtration systems someplace. It's used in groundwater remediation. It's used in hospitals around the world to treat overdose patients. It's used in intensive care units and EMT vehicles to absorb human 
or harmful drugs and poisons from patients. Um, they'll just have little pills in the EMT vehicles. It's used by every country in the world in their chemical warfare suits. It's used by the U.S. Department of Energy to store natural and hydrogen gas. So just as NASA, the auto industry, the U.S. Department of Energy, hospitals worldwide, and every Department of Defense in the world didn't pull activated carbon out of the hat and say, hey, let's use this stuff, neither did Centlock. Right. It's, uh, it works. There's tons and tons of proof on it, and people that uh, try to say it doesn't are just kidding themselves. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people out there drinking Kool-Aid from some of these forums and, you know, they just kind of drink the Kool-Aid and with whatever the forum guys say. So when you just got to wear a flannel shirt and you're good to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and here, here's something that's, here's something that's extremely uh, hard for m many people to understand. Uh, microscopic, I'm reading this by the way, microscopic evaluations show that if you took all the surface areas, and this came right off Google, right out of an activated carbon scientific site, if you took all of the primary, secondary, tertiary pores and the exterior surface of every piece and every particle of activated carbon, and you took them all and you flattened them out on a flat surface, one tablespoon of activated coconut carbon particles has the surface area of three and a half football fields. Holy cow. A one, if you took a buttercup, you know, just one of those one pound buttercups and you fill that up with activated carbon particles. And keep in mind, these particles are smaller than a grain of sand, but they're extremely porous. And all of the surfaces of a one pound buttercup of activated carbon would uh, flatten out to cover a uh, hundred over a hundred acres. Wow, that's, that's how porous it is. And activated carbon is something that's made in a chemical process. They take they take carbonaceous materials like wood or uh, coconut shells, and they heat them at fourteen hundred fifty degrees while under pressure, and then that's what makes activated carbon. So you can't take Scentlock suit and ever get it back to its pristine state where there's no molecules bonded to it. So when you're hunting, your molecules bond to the activated carbon and in the pores, but when you throw it in the dryer, which is how you deabsorb it, the dryers, most dryers get to 145 to 170 degrees. And basically that creates enough heat to energize the human odor molecules and energize the activated carbon. And when you energize molecules, what that does is it makes them move more rapidly. That's why there's expansion joints in the Mackinac Bridge or there's expansion joints in concrete highways because on 90, 100 degree days, the concrete expands, the steel in the bridge expands. And if they didn't have the expansion joints, the bridges, the steel would buckle and the concrete would buckle. Right. So the same exact process that affects those, energizes the molecules on the carbon and the carbon itself. And, it, and as it moves more rapidly, a lot of the molecules break free from the carbon and exit out the dryer. So it deabsorbs it plenty to have a lot more uses out of it. So that was my question too, is what, 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 are, you, what are you running for? Like, what is the estimated half-life on something like that? So let, let's say my Savannah suit that I have. What, what 10 years. 10 years? 8 to 10 years with average use. So if you were a weekend warrior that hunted Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 
you know, for three months, um, they figure about eight to 10 years. Okay. A long time. Yeah. I mean, for the average. Stuntlock actually, this one here is pretty interesting and not many people know this. Stuntlock got sued quite a few years ago. And so yeah. this whole molecule thing kind of went to a United States district court. After uh, after five years, it ended up in a United States district court. And what they did is they had Suntlock send some suits to Rutgers University, where they have a science lab that that's all they do. All is they study activated carbon. So this this what I'm going to read you was taken directly from the court's final ruling, dismissal ruling, on Suntlock's behalf. Ex, this is a quote, expert scientific testing found that using highly elevated odor concentrations that were likely 10,000 times greater than a human body could produce in the course of 24 hours, sunblock carbon lined clothing blocked or absorbed 96 to 99 plus percent of odor compounds and essentially 100% of surrogate body odor compounds. And it also went on to say, uh, when dried, as mentioned in the Scentlock instructions, it also deadsorbed it to the point where it would work for, you know, many more hunts. Wow. wow. Yeah, I, I did know about the lawsuit and that they that they came out on top of that. But I'm glad you brought that up. That that's that's pretty uh, that's pretty cool. We we it, actually we all, we yeah. all wear Scentlock, so. And they use 10,000 times more molecules than the human body could produce in a 24-hour period. And it still absorbed 96 to 99%. Right. So they went to the extreme. Right. Went that's to the extreme. Good. Yes. That's, that's that's a pretty good testimony to the abilities of sound logs. Uh, I, I, ha I have to say, you know, with all of that testing and all that proof, if it's not taken care of properly... If it's not stored properly, it's not going to work as designed. You right. have to you have to re deadsorb it about every four to four to five hunts, and it has to go right from the dryer and from a clean dryer into an airtight tote. And right. you don't put it on until you're out into the field. And then when you get back to your vehicle or back up to the house, if you're up behind the house, it comes back off and goes back in the airtight container. Right, right. And that goes for the head cover, gloves. Jacket, pants, and backpack also needs to be, if you're using a cell lock backpack, it needs to go in an airtight container. If you're using a regular backpack, it needs to be washed regularly and scent free detergent and then put in an airtight container as well. A, a different yeah. container, I'm assuming, than your scent lock garments, correct? Uh, you'd never, if you have a, a non scent lock backpack and you wash it, yeah, it should not go in the same container with your scent lock. It should go in a different airtight container, correct? Do you yeah, use the set lock bag or do you use an air light lock tote? I use or a tote. Airtight bag works fine. Air, air, the okay. airtight bag works fine and it doesn't have to be set locks. It can be anybody's airtight bag. Yeah, yeah, as long as they're tight. And see, um, th this is one gotcha. thing that I want, I want to just interrupt everybody just so we're not, we're, we're, we're sure that, uh, Eberhardt, you're not getting paid by set lock. I mean, you, you're, you just promote their product because they use them. And right. it, it works. So it's, this guy's not just talking shit. He's not just blowing steam up your butt. <laughs> this is I would do that. I would <laughs> endorse anything that doesn't work. 
Sunlock does not pay me a dime. And no, I have no reason to endorse it other than it works. That, that's I've awesome. Been, I have been sent so many things over the years to try and because they want me to endorse it. Not bragging or boasting, but I've lots, most of the time I send it back and right. I won't, I won't say anything negative about it for the most part, but I won't endorse it right. because it doesn't right. We, uh, my dad, my old man wants to know if you ever use Mountain Dew and cigarette smoke scent. <laughs> 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 no. That's his, that's his go-to, and he still kills deer for some reason. None of them are real big. He's got a couple big ones out on the wall, but for the most part, they're, uh, you know, young young deer. It's funny. He always says, he's like, I just use Mountain Dew and uh, cigarette smoke. It works great for me. <laughs> well, let's be let's be realistic. I have I have friends. I have two friends that I hunted with. I mean, and I never hunted near them, but they both would take six beers with them, and they'll and they yeah. both smoke. They always hunted the wind. They killed deer. They didn't kill big deer, but they killed deer. Yeah. You know, it all depends on what you want to kill. You know, if if you want to kill subordinate bucks and does, and you know maybe once every ten years get a crack at a good mature buck, well that's fine. But if if you're doing everything correctly, I mean I don't know how many times when I was even hunting the wind, you know I'd have a deer come in from upwind, and then if it was a non-target deer, it goes to my downwind side as it's passing by, and then it wins me on the downwind side, and then it blows and spooks. So. You know, when you're just playing the wind, and you're going to get busted. I mean, I don't care what you yeah. do; you're going to get busted sooner or later. Yeah, uh, even if you're playing the wind, because you're you're never going to have deer where you think they're going to be all the time. That ain't going to happen. Now, now you said you said the two things that you, you think make the two things: the scent control and the the fact that you hunt out of you're hunting out of a saddle have made you you know successful. Um, you hunt out of the tethered saddle, correct? Uh, I do. I'm actually, boy, I don't know if I should say this or not, but nah, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to say it. Damn. I thought, I thought we had him. I actually, <laughs> no, I'm not going to say it until next year. <laughs> I actually just, I'll be uh, hunting out of a mantis saddle. I've been hunting out of a tree sling for the last 38 years. Um, but this year I'll be hunting out of a mantis saddle. I think that's the best commercial saddle made. Uh, it's the lightest. It's been the most thought through because the two guys that own the company are actual hunters. Um, there's another pretty high profile saddle company out there and the owner is not a hunter. Um, so I support the hunting community and uh, they make good, decent saddles too. But the Mantis is hands down the best because it's the lightest. It's the most comfortable uh, they're using a Dyneema, Dyneema for a bridge, which is like Fireline. If anybody knows what Fireline is, it's a braid. So they got a quarter-inch rope used as their bridge, which uh, holds 7,000 pounds. They're they're safe, basically give you the advantage of a saddle over a conventional stand, which in these, these there's a lot of advantages. Safety. Uh, you're tethered to the tree from the moment you leave the ground until you step back on the ground after your hunt. So basically, your saddle comes with a safety belt. So when you're at the base of the tree, you put the safety belt around the tree. You know, you climb the tree, you slide the belt up on the back like a lineman would do. And then when you get up to the top, you leave the safety belt on, you put out your get out your tree tether belt, wrap it around the tree, hook it to your bridge in front of you. 
And then once you're securely hooked up into that, then you disattach your safety belt, put it in your backpack or the pouch, and you hunt. And then uh, basically when you get done hunting, you reattach the safety belt, disattach the lead, and then go back down the tree. So you can't fall from a saddle. Also with the saddle, you can use the safety strap as a climbing apparatus and for prepping your trees. You know, if you're going out post-season and you're going to pre-prep your trees, you can use that for going up the tree. You got both hands free for putting in steps or sticks or tree stands or whatever. You know, if you're hunting out of a tree stand, you have to have a separate apparatus climbing harness for putting in steps and sticks and climbing up the tree to hook up your stand so your saddle is not only your hunting apparatus it's also your prepping apparatus uh saddles are made of fabric so there's never any noise associated with pulling up a stand or you know setting them up especially on trees with with rough rough bark or if you got a you know, a chain on a stand there's always going to be noise uh, you don't ever have to worry about the stand creaking when you shift your weight um, because there's no metal joints. Uh, saddles weigh uh, saddles weigh probably I think the mantis with all the ropes probably a pound and a half. Uh, so it's extremely light. Rolls up, fits in my backpack. A lot of people wear them in. You actually put it on and wear it just like you know on the outside of your pants, and you can't even tell it's on. It's only a pound and a half. So you can wear it in. So unlike tree stands, they're not cumbersome. Uh, there's not a lot of weight to them. Um, you have three, this is a major advantage, 360 degree shooting mobility around any tree. So there's no missed opportunities. If you're on, you know, if you're on a small tree with a tree stand, you can typically shoot around to the backside. But if you're on a tree that's like 18 inches or bigger, you typically can't shoot around to the backside. You're probably, there's probably 60, 70 degrees of area that you cannot shoot to. And with a saddle, there are no dead areas. Uh, at destination locations, this one's a very important fact right here. If you're hunting at a destination location, let's say you're at a scrape area or you're at an apple tree or you're at a white oak tree or you're a food plot guy and you're hunting on the edge of a food plot where places where you're going to have multiple deer out in front of you for a period of time with a tree stand. You typically have to kick the stand off a little bit to the side so you can shoot to that destination location. Because if you're facing 180 degrees away from the location, you can't shoot through the tree to shoot to the location. So with the saddle, you just basically set up on the back side of the tree where you're using the trunk as a blocker between you and the destination location. And you just peek around the corner. And then as soon as you shoot, you, if as soon as there's something there you want to shoot, you just barely, you know, you wait obviously till their deer's attention is elsewhere and you just lean slightly to the side and, and take the shot. And when you're at a spot where there's a lot of deer hanging around for, you know, 20 minutes at a time, they're grabbing an apple, picking up an acorn. And when they chew it, they're looking around, their ears are moving around, you know, and when there's multiple deer and you're in a tree stand, and the foliage is down, your odds of getting picked are really, really high. With a saddle, yeah. your odds of getting picked are really, really, really low <laughs> because you got the tree as a 100% blocker. And that was, uh, uh, was going to be my point, too, is when the foliage is down, I know that's a lot of – It's you see the guys go out there and they put their stands up, and they're facing, you know, oh, we're going to prune this tree. You know, I can't see with this and that. But they don't plan for the foliage being down late season. 
and with the saddle you could turn around and actually use that tree as cover. That's pretty sweet. Absolutely. And that's something you see with a lot of guys that preseason scout and set their locations in preseason. When you're out there preseason, that's why I, that's another reason I do all my scouting and location prep during postseason. If you go out preseason like right now and you prep a tree, you know, all the trees have leaves on them. You got lots of background cover because the, be, the trees behind you have leaves on them. So you may set up 18 feet in a tree at a rut phase location. And then once the rut comes and all the foliage is down, you get up in that tree and you stick out like a sore thumb because you don't have any background cover. You got a sky behind you and there's no cover in the tree. So with a saddle, you know, you just hunt a little higher or just hide behind the tree. So that, that's a, that's in a very important deal. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, we, uh, I actually just had drinks with Ernie and Greg on Tuesday night. Mm-hmm. And uh, this will be my first year on out of a saddle. I've sat, I went out to my property a couple of weeks ago and um, checked cameras because I got a two hour drive and I, sat in my saddle on a tree for the first time yep it was i i can say it was very comfortable i'm uh there's definitely a learning curve i set up my platform on the wrong side of the tree because in my mind i'm so um programmed to set it the way you would set a regular tree stand sure Um, (laughs) you know and then climbing uh i don't have any sticks at the time at the moment i just ordered some um and i was using a easy cut hand drill and um some bolts that I bought at Home Depot that I for some reason thought would hold my weight and they they all bent on my way up the tree. <laughs> so <laughs> that's definitely I still did it. I got up there. I'm like I'm going for it. I'm out here. So um that's definitely the the climbing part is the learning curve for me. I'm going to it's going to take some trial and error, but I'm super super excited to put myself into some spots that I that I wasn't able to last year because because of the saddle. And actually, go ahead. Yeah, I I actually plan on hitting a couple of small pieces of public that are you know somewhat close to where I live. I live in the city, so. Um, but I my what stopped me from going there before was I'm not going to lug a tree stand out there. Well, now I don't have to. Right. Yep. See, I'm not. I don't even like platform. I don't use the predator platform. I just use steps. That's just something else I don't have to carry. And to me, the platform puts your body profile too far away from the tree. Okay. But a lot of guys like the platform. I'd say 70% of the people like the platform. But at, at some point in time, if you use a platform, it's going to cost you getting picked because your okay. body profile is too far from the tree right. on, a, on, a decent, on a decent deer. Um, some other advantages, though, of a saddle is you can hunt large, large and tiny diameter trees, whereas with conventional stands, you have to hunt trees of specific size to accommodate them and I've hunted trees as big as probably 36 to 40 inch diameters and I've killed bucks out of I killed one buck out of a tree that was probably four inches in diameter obviously I couldn't move in it I had to take I had to set up for one shot and specifically because if I if I I moved the whole tree would be wiggling (laughs) but three diameters are irrelevant and unlike a climber you know with a climber you have to basically hunt a telephone pole it's got to be totally devoid of branches and with a saddle you can use branches as blockers and cover and steps right Uh, trees that lean up to 15 degrees you can hunt i actually like hunting out of trees that lean you can't do that with any kind of conventional stand unless it's a a, what do they call those ladder stands you can do it with a ladder stand but not with a hang on or a climber 
God, there's just so many advantages. You got a lot, you shoot better because you got three solid points of body contact. Your both of your feet are solidly on something and your butt's solidly in something. A lot of times when you're tree stand hunting, you physically stand up and you're basically got both your feet on the platform and you're somewhat balancing right. to take shot. You don't right. have to balance at all when you're in a saddle. You're both your feet are solidly planted on something and your butt is solidly planted in a kamek style seat. So I, you shoot I more think, accurate. I think that uh, we could have a whole entire other podcast on saddle hunting. <laughs> um, and we, yeah, we, take... we could. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I got to tell you this because you had an issue. If somebody, if you were to go out with somebody that's hunted out of a saddle for a couple of years, getting used to it is, it's like a 15 minute process to get comfortable. But for somebody that just buys a saddle, they don't have anybody to help them. Yeah, there is a little bit of a learning curve on how to set your steps up, how high to hook right. up your tether. You know, there's some things that you'd need to button down. Now, if somebody wanted to email me, I'd send them all the information they would need. So I'll give them my email address if you want. That brings cool. us yeah. to our, uh, our, our next. And like we said, we didn't want to take up all your night. I mean, we could sit here and talk. Okay. on or off the air for the next three, four hours. But we do want to give you a little plug. So if you want to plug your uh, your website and your email address, maybe a couple of books and a couple of brief descriptions as to what what uh, you what you uh, are all about with your yeah, seminars. Where, where, where can we find all hey, your stuff? Well, I'll give you my uh, I'll give you my website, which is D-E-E-R hyphen, that's the little dash john.net so dear-john.net is my website and um i guess the book you know i sell books on there i've written three books uh they've been the best-selling bow hunting books ever printed as far as instructional books and i i also sell instructional dvds there's no kills in them they're just instructional dvds telling you how to prep locations and just how to hunt and tactics and stuff like that and i also do these spring because I, I like people to do all their scouting and tr location preparation in the spring in the spring march and april i have three workshops they're two-day workshops the first day is out in the woods we visit about 14 of my preset locations on a piece of property and at the end of that day that's a saturday at the end of that day we take about a two to three hour segment for people that want to stay and learn how to saddle hunt, I'll have all the different sizes of saddles, go through that with a fine tooth comb, let everybody get in one, show them how to properly sit in it, how high to put the tether, how to put the steps around the tree. Uh, and then on Sunday, the second day, it's pretty much an all day seminar up at Jay's Sporting Goods in the Outback Room, uh, which is a nice, it's a seminar room with office chairs, nice padded office chairs. Um, and, and Jay's gives everybody a 15% discount that they can use during the, during a week. And, um, so the, the workshops are something that I'm promoting and they're on all the information about the workshops are, are on my website as well. Awesome. That's awesome. Um, anything else you wanted to plug? Not really. All right. <laughs> um, I got one go. quick question, real, oh. real quick question for you. And sure. then you can make this answer as quick as you want, but somebody really wants me to ask you, do you believe in the moon phase? No. 
Okay. <laughs> I figured out the answer. But I think all of us as hunters have gone through that phase of time where we've ordered the little turn, the little like turn thing on online and, and to tell you if it's going to be, you know, you get the apps now on the phones and stuff. But my buddy's been bugging. He's texting me three times. Make sure you ask him about the moon phase. Well, I'm going <laughs> to so, tell you why. Okay. Go I'm on. not just going to say no and leave it hanging. You got to know without ahead. having a reason. Yeah, we got time. Go ahead. Okay. Um, back in the 70s, Shining, when I first moved up north to uh, Claire from Northville, Shining was a big deal up here. A lot of people shine deer. And one thing I always noticed, and I even noticed this when I was hunting, is when you'd go out shining and it was a full moon phase with no cloud cover, so it's brighter than hell at night, you never ever saw I'm just not going to say never, but it was very rare to see a decent buck. You know, you'd see a lot of does and subordinate bucks out in the field, but you hardly ever saw a decent buck. And then if you went out, let's say you went out the next night and it was raining, still got a full moon, but it's raining. So you got cloud cover and it's dark out. Totally different. You'd see lots. You'd see, you know, you'd see big bucks. You'd see some nice bucks. And it wasn't uncommon back then to see. You know, I have three people shining the same damn field, <laughs> you know, at the same time. Right, right. Shining was very prevalent. And one thing I've noticed when I've bow hunted over the years is when there's a full moon at night with no cloud cover during the rut phases, the midday movements the next day were huge. There was a lot of midday, 11 to 3 o'clock midday movements the next day. But if it was a full moon and there was cloud cover at night, the midday movements the next day were normal, you know, like any other day, whether it was full moon or not. And mid and I'm a big midday hunting guy during during the pre-rut. So, you know, I hunt a lot during midday. In fact, to give you a stat, um, I've killed of in Michigan of the my thirty one book bucks in Michigan, and I've shot a lot more bucks than that, but of the thirty one book bucks that I shot between November 1st and November 14th, I shot 20 of them. And of those 27 of those were shot between 11 o'clock and three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> seven of seven out of 20 between 11 and three in the afternoon. While I can guarantee you far less than 10% of my time on stand was spent hunting between 11 and three. So I, even though I shot 35% of my bucks between 11 and 3 during that 14-day time frame, less than 10% of my time spent on stand was during that time frame. Wow. So that's a strong statement. Yeah. And when I say midday hunting, it has to be in the right type of location. You just can't go hunt a field edge tree. You know, I'm not a field edge hunter at all in Michigan, but you can't go hunt just a, a a regular hunting location during midday and expect it to be successful. You got to be, you got to be back where there's security cover, where bucks feel comfortable transitioning from this spot to that spot, you know, with good transition security cover or in bedding areas or something like that. Right. right. Cool. All right. Well, well I now. think you definitely changed. Uh, I know you for sure. Just this talk has changed the way that I'm going to, I'm going to look at my property here this year after September 20th, of course. So <laughs> definitely well, cool go out there. That is there's buck sign at that time. So you can actually read the buck sign. And so you're definitely setting up on buck sign and not just deer traffic. Right. Right. 
Well, we don't want to take up any more of your time, John. We really, really appreciate you coming on our podcast. Um, You're more than welcome. Anytime. Are we going to see you at the Outdoorama? Uh, yes, I will be doing seminars at the Outdoorama in Novi again. Yes. Awesome. We'll, uh, awesome. we'll be there. And, uh, and we're looking forward to seeing what goes on at this uh, hunting, the public hunting challenge you guys got going on here in Michigan. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to hunt. Oh, the shoulder. Yes. Oh, yep, I, actually no. went, I went and saw the doctor today, and he said, you will no way be able to hunt first week of October. Maybe first week of November, but not first week of October. Are you, are you going to be uh, down there? Are you going to be over there? Well, I'm going to be. I'm definitely going to be there. You bet. Supporting okay. Ernie and Craig for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hunt uh, not too far from there. I told Ernie uh, I might stop by and say hi to you guys. Okay. And I, yeah, and I may go out and I, I can definitely go scout and find some places for him to hunt. That's for sure. But Boy, yeah. I'm kind of, I'm kind of in a negative because I've hunted 17 different public lands and I can't, the rules are if I've ever been on any of the public lands before, I can't go there again. So Right. <laughs> that makes a lot of land in Southern Michigan. <laughs> yeah. Cool. That's cool. okay. Yeah. Craig and Ernie can. <laughs> yep, yep. All right. Well, we'll let you go. And uh, again, we really appreciate it. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate the opportunity. All right, thanks, John. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Well, that was incredible. That was probably the coolest yeah. podcast of this of our whole little BS series. That is awesome. Yeah, that was awesome. I can't <laughs> wait to listen to it again. <laughs> well, why am I going to be listening to my own podcast with a notepad? <laughs> I, might, I might go upstairs and listen to it tonight, and man, it's going to be like, why are you listening to it? You just recorded it. <laughs> Finish this shit up. I'm hungry. <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, man, um, go ahead and wrap it up. Well, that was incredible. It's John Eberhardt, one of the most decorated, probably public decorated uh, Michigan public land hunter in the state. It has to be, for sure. I, I mean, that, sure. That, that anybody knows of. I mean, there might be some, some right. outlier freak guy that nobody knows about that just doesn't want anybody to know about him. I mean, Absolutely. Mitch, Ro- Mitch Robinson. <laughs> and so that, that guy is just a stand-up guy. And, uh, the three of us had met him. Um, at Outdoorama last year, and he again, like us, we're if we're doing something right and it's working for us, we're gonna let you know. We're not gonna keep it a secret, and that guy is definitely no exception to that either. So, just a stand-up guy, we really appreciate him. Um, go check out his website. Um, he's got, like he said, his in- informational DVDs. He's doing seminars, and uh, again at the Outdoorama as well. Um, and you could buy his uh, his books which I've actually got one in on the way, um, which is his, uh, what is it, the pressured whitetails, which is awesome, especially being Michigan. Everything is pressured. Um, so go check him out. That, web, that website's that? worth looking at just to see his trophy wall. The website alone, go to his photos. It's worth looking at. We'll put a link yep. to it. Yep. yep. So, so click subscribe, on like, all that fun shit. All that fun shit. And Nico's going to go eat like a fat little girl. I'm fucking hungry. Thanks for watching. Hey. Okay. Okay, bye. Bye.